0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: If I'd known what I was walking into, I never would have gone.
2: It was your idea to attend the conference in the first place, Garrick.
1: I thought the Bajorans would be grateful to hear someone provide them with an opposing philosophical view.
2: Opposing view? Garrick, you were trying to defend the military occupation of their world. How grateful did you think they would be?
1: My understanding of this conference was that it was supposed to be an examination of the occupation from a dispassionate historical perspective. Instead, everyone went out of their way to dismiss virtually everything I had to say. I thought the Vajorans bent over backwards to be polite to you, Garrick.
2: Giving me a
1: name tag that read Elim Garrick, former Cardassian oppressor, was hardly polite.
2: And what did you want it to say? former spy.
1: What I would have liked was less
2: posturing and more debate.
3: Hello, everyone. It is Thursday, November 30th, 2023. I'm Robert Vaughn, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right,
2: Colour and colour, it to color, color black and white, under the bedclothes,
3: everything will be all right. L'chaim, that is, the Jewish toast to life. But death seems to be on the minds of both Jews and Arabs in the Middle East these days, given the Hamas massacre of October 7th and the retaliatory bombing of Gaza by Israel. Of course, the latest conflict is just one of several which date back at least to the founding of Israel by the United Nations back in 1948. The world has been witness to 75 years of bloodshed in that region, with seemingly no end in sight. In any conflict, one has to ask the question, how did it start? Who threw the first punch, if you will? Well, that question is as old as Moses. And it may not be until the second coming of the messiah before we're given a satisfactory answer but we must think optimistically about all such conflicts and try to find a solution and what better way to start than by trying to understand the history of the rivalry putting it in full context avoids us making the mistake of looking at each battle in isolation and never coming to a resolution to help us understand the big picture I recently had a conversation with Professor Salim Mansur of Western University who posted an article on his substack called Rabin's Murder is Prehistory of Gaza-Israel, October 7. It's a fascinating piece which posits that when Israel went from being a secular state under leaders such as Yitzhak Rabin into a religious state under leaders such as Benjamin Netanyahu, it went in a direction of even more blood and conflict a conflict that may never have a clear solution without the intervention of the United Nations. My video with Salim, which runs about an hour and a half, is available on JustRate's video channels on Rumble, BitChute, YouTube, and Odyssey. Just visit our website, JustRateMedia.org, for handy links to our channels on these sites. What I intend to do for the remainder of the show is to present excerpts from that discussion, punctuated with clips from the movie Exodus which is an adaptation of Leon Uris' novel of the same name. We'll also hear from Pat Buchanan on The Lair Report. Before we begin, though, I would like to remind you that you can write us at feedback at justratemedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justratemedia.org, where you can find all of our social media links, archived broadcasts, And the support button, which makes it easy for you to support this show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes the show possible. Salim, could you please share your thoughts on the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and explain why it is crucial to reflect on that event in the aftermath of October
4: 7th? Thank you, Robert. My essay was an attempt on my part to put the events of October 7th and thereafter. In a context that what is the prehistory, the United Nations Security Council called a special session looking to or to open the debate into the events of uh, October 7th. And the secondary general remarks was one in which he began by unequivocally denouncing the attacks that took place on the morning of October 7th by hamas he went on to say that it is important also to recognize the attacks by hamas did not happen in a vacuum and then he went on to say the palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation so those were the remarks that i then subsequently Wanted to elaborate in terms of the prehistory of October 7th and of the situation that has persisted, as the Secretary General said, for 56 years. The 56 years' references going back to the 1967 war, which led to the Israeli government coming into the control of what has since then been referred to by the United Nations as occupied territories that is the West Bank and the Gaza. I picked up the prehistory, the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin 28 years ago in November of 1995. And the context of why he was assassinated by an Israeli, a right-wing Jew, Igal Amir. But he was not operating alone. Uh, There was a whole temper and mood that was created in the period between the signing of the Oslo Accord in 1993 and the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin in 1995. So that's the prehistory. So any event, I mean, if people want to understand what happened, for instance, in the 1920s and 30s in Germany that led to the rise of Hitler uh, and eventually World War II, It did not happen in a a vacuum. One would have to go back to what is the prehistory of the making of Hitler, of Nazi Germany. Now that leads to two narratives, Robert. One narrative is the narrative of the mainstream media pushed by, in this sense, the Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu, that it is the events of October 7th that is responsible for what the idf then responded to and that situation is still continuing in the sense of the bombing of uh, gaza so that's one narrative and i will suggest that that is the narrative that is the narrative of the mainstream media in north america and in the collective west in europe but that's not the narrative of the 80 percent of the world population that is a member state of the united Nations because they look at the events of October 7 in terms of how the Secretary General put it. It didn't happen in a vacuum. It's 56 years of occupation. And that is the context that has to be drawn. So there are two narratives that are in competition or in collision, you know, and it will depend upon how this is framed. Who frames it? How it is framed. Now you can get into the details. Uh, The detail would be that in 1993, in September of 1993, Prime Minister Rabin, with his Foreign Minister, Shimon Peres, joined by the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, Yasser Arafat, came together at the invitation of the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, who hosted the ceremony and the events Of September 13, 1993, which was the signing of the Oslo Accord. Oslo Accord was the agreement that was reached between the Palestinians with the representative of the Israeli government. Uh, And the agreement was, was that the Palestinian liberation fully endorses and accepts UN Resolution 242 and 338, and all the resolution... Uh, that goes along with that fundamental resolution 242, which was negotiated by the Security Council after the June 1967 war and passed in November 1967. So it, it accepts that. And so we will have to read and look at uh, those resolutions. And it renounces all uh, terrorists and military activities against the state of Israel.
3: It reckon, just like to... Uh... Just like to read, just for context, uh, Salim, what Arafat wrote, he said, the signing of the Declaration of Principles marks a new era in the history of the Middle East. In firm conviction thereof, I would like to confirm the following commitments. The PLO recognizes the right of the state of Israel to exist in peace and security. And the PLO accepts United Nations Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338. If something like that were to happen today, there would be jubilation if Hamas were to come out and say things like that, though they're not the negotiating party here. They're not the Palestinian Authority, right? They're just simply in Gaza. So um, I can see perhaps the Palestinian Authority coming out and reviving Yasser Arafat's uh, statements, but I could not see Hamas doing it considering their charter.
4: Hamas is not a player in all of this. The signature that counts and that is recognized and that is witness, is the signature of the PLO leadership. The PLO leadership would later on be transformed into Palestinian authority. So a, a body of people can come around and say, we don't recognize, that is a Palestinian can come, come around and say, we don't recognize uh, the Oslo Accord. Well, you don't recognize, that's your problem. And if you're going to get violent about it, then the Palestinian Authority
3: will deal with you. Just as Hamas or malcontents on the Palestinian side don't agree with the Oslo Accords, likewise in Israel, there was a very large faction of Israelis who did not agree, hence the assassination of Rabin, hence the rise of people like Benjamin Netanyahu and the Lukud party.
4: Exactly, exactly. So that's the prehistory. And we are into that, uh discussion. On, on the Palestinian side, you're pointing out quite correctly that there is a body of opinion of challenging the PLO, okay? Uh that did not go along or does not want to go along with what was agreed upon on the basis of UN Resolution 242, which predates Oslo Accord. The Oslo Accord is is based upon you Resolution 242. The reply, what is the reply of Rabin to that letter? I mean, you you read the letter that Arafat on behalf of the PLO wrote to the Israeli government. And then the Prime Minister of Israel replied to that letter. Let me read it to you. In response to your letter of 9 September 1993, I wish to confirm to you that in light of the PLO commitments included in your letter, the government of Israel has decided to recognize the PLO as representative of the Palestinian people and commence negotiations with the PLO within the Middle East peace process. There's no mention of Hamas. There's no mention of any other group of people. It is a recognition by two entities. One entity is a sovereign state that binds the people of Israel to an agreement. And the second entity is the entity that the United Nations has recognized as representative of the Palestinian people, which eventually will become the state of Palestine and they will have their own sovereign government. So that was recognized. And now you are absolutely on the mark that it was not only the Palestinian people, a faction of the Palestinian people that did not agree with the Oslo Accord, Hamas, but also the Israeli people were divided, maybe right down the middle 50-50 or 60-40. But there was opposition, and the opposition gathered momentum and steam against Prime Minister Rabin. And what was uh, at the heart of that opposition, at the heart of the opposition was the argument that no piece of territory, no land, that is, land of Israel, eras Israel, which is the language that became the language of the Likud party, that opposition party, whose leader right now is Benjamin Netanyahu. And their argument was, and is, and remains, that no piece of territory, that is, land of Israel, makes up land of Israel, er eras Israel, can be signed away, can be returned to Palestinians. Just
3: just to clarify, Erez Israel means the historic, biblical land of Israel Um, Some might consider it from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. Although if you look at the 12 tribes of Jews, in the biblical sense, that goes right into Jordan. So where is is Israel? It's certainly not the boundaries pre-67. Well,
4: yes. I mean, by raising raising all of this issue, which is what the Likud party has raised, that you are basically, uh, you know, describe the liquid party's position on this matter they, they are claiming that it is israel is the land of israel the biblical land of israel it is israel and and um, the whole project the zionist project is to reclaim the land of israel back and once these lands are reclaimed in the process through war or through negotiation whatever the means these, these land cannot be then negotiated away, returned, so to speak. Well, that raises a whole can of worms, uh, Robert. And we can yeah. go in, into that discussion and we can forget about this discussion.
3: Actually, that I, both discussions are very important because to get into the mind, for people here in the West to get into the mind of people like Benjamin Netanyahu, or uh, to use the term Zionist, in the broad sense meaning all of the land of israel eretz israel um and and what they want it is in today's you know 2023 to go back 2500 years and say this is ours by right of of the bible that to me is folly the largest shipload of zionist
5: refugees the vessel having been rammed and damaged by a british destroyer in a wild melee when British sailors fought their way aboard. The Exodus 1947, an old American Chesapeake Bay steamer, which took aboard 4,500 Zionists bound for Palestine. Taken to the port of Haifa, the refugees will be put aboard another vessel and sent back to France whence they came. 35 were injured, several killed, including the first mate of the American Jewish crew. This is a climax in the story of immigrant ships intercepted by the British while bringing Zionist refugees to Palestine.
1: ship has arrived full of Jews for the camps, madame. What camps? Detention comes out at Caralos, madame. You see, the Jews, they charter a ship from Europe to get to Palestine. Then the British, they catch the ship and send the whole bunch here. The Arabs don't want them in Palestine. And as far as I know, the British don't want them here either. Andrea, this is Ari Benkendorf. Welcome. Very pleased to meet you. We've heard good things about you in Palestine, Mr. Mondria. Rumors,
4: but I like them.
1: So do we. Piece it down. Well, David, how many people have you got by now in that barbed wire jungle of yours? Over thirty thousand. How many people arrived yesterday in the Star of David? Six hundred and eleven. But well, we are going to take the same six hundred and eleven off the island and land them in Palestine. Six hundred and eleven. He thinks he's Moses. <laughs> Ari, we haven't been able to break more than ten or fifteen at a time out of Carols Then this will be a new experience. Ari, we cannot do it. David, the United Nations will vote on the Palestine issue before the end of its present session. Between now and then, we have to show the world that the thousands and thousands of homeless Jews in Europe are not going to accept any solution that bars them from Palestine. A mass escape of the very same people who arrived yesterday on the Star of David is worth more than a million speeches. But this isn't the Red Sea, Harry. It's the Mediterranean. Right. Smite these waters as you will. They do not part. That's why you will have to get us a ship, Mr. Mondria. I want a legitimate freighter with legal registry and real cargo that we can unload right here in Cyprus. We Cypriots are with you. For the Jews, Mandria will do everything. The Jews have paid you well for your efforts, Mr. Mondria. And well, then the project of the boat is underway, right, Mr. Montreal? Almost accomplished. I will send a telegram to a shipbroker friend of mine in Athens. Don't the British monitor telegrams? Naturally. But some of the monitors are Cypriots. They would like to see the Britons in Britain, the Jews in Palestine, and the Cypriots in Cyprus. Not mind you that I am anti-British. But if I must have a master, the British are far the best. But the problem, my dear friends, is why I have a master at all? shouldn't have heard him, Harry. He's a real friend. Maybe. But don't let the Mandrias fool you all over the world. They work for us and they say how terrible it was that six million Jews went into the oven. But when the showdown comes, we always stand alone. Mandria will sell us out like all the others. We have no friends, except ourselves. Remember that. You're wrong, Harry, but you'll have to learn that for yourself.
4: The modern state of Israel that came into being in 1948, whose origin goes back to uh, the mandate that was formed after World War I by the League of Nations. The lands of that was under the Ottoman Empire were partitioned, divided. New states were created by Britain and France. And Palestine was made into a mandate and was given to Britain to administer. And the mandate of Palestine had come about as a result of the Balfour Declaration, 1917. And that was the declaration that was what was pushed by the Zionist organization, the World Zionist Organization, that was formed by Theodor Herzl, who was the founder of uh, the World Zionist Organization at the conference in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. Theodor Herzl's book, *The Jewish State*, is in that sense the foundational book of the modern state of Israel, not the Bible. the The modern state of Israel is founded upon the arguments that was made by Theodor Herzl, and Theodor Herzl was prepared to create a Jewish state wherever the great powers of Europe at that time would help provide territory the European Jews. I'm being very careful as I'm pointing this out to you, Robert. European Jews. These demands were not coming from Jews in India, Jews in the Arab world, Jews in the Ottoman Empire. Um,
3: People may be interested to know that of the 13 men who have, and women, who have held the, the role of Prime Minister of Israel, only five were born in either Israel or the mandate. Um, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister from Poland. Then there was three Ukrainians. Then there was a British mandate, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the first one to be born in that area. And then there was a Belarusian and then two more Poles. And then from then on, they were all Israeli. So that is fascinating that these are not what people may call Semitic Jews, they were Khazarian Jews or right.
4: Ashkenazi right so so Theodor Herzl was born in Budapest Hungary part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire he was a European
3: Jew and they were part of the diaspora
4: well, well that, that's right so but this is the problem of the European Jews but the point I'm getting at is the right-wing dem- argument of biblical land of Israel is not the mission or was not the mission of Herzl. He was ready to accept a Jewish state in Uganda or in Argentina. And if they had established a state in Uganda, there would have been an Ugandan problem, not a Palestinian
3: problem. There's this great quote from Rabin when he was asked, um, a girl in the audience then asked, and what about all of the historic land of Israel? To which Rabin answered, Quote, for me, the Bible is not a land registry of the Middle East. It is a book that provides education in values, and its purposes are different. That's an amazing quote. Contrary to Benjamin Netanyahu.
4: Right, exactly. I mean, there you have it. I mean, that is the money quote. So when Idzak Rabin says the Bible is not a land registry, what is he saying? This is a secular, political movement, and the basis of Israel's foundation and legitimacy of Israel comes from the United Nations, its resolution, going all the way back first to the Palestine mandate and the League of Nations, and then the League of Nations transferring the mandate to the United Nations when the United Nations was created in 1945. And then the resolutions that came together to establish uh, in the Palestine mandate two states, one Jewish, one Arab. The resolution that founded the two states or is the basis of the two states does not give the name to what will be the name of the two states. So the Jews selected the name Israel. I don't know what the Palestinians are going to select, but that's up to them. The authority comes from the United Nations, okay? By the way, I should emphasize over here, the only state that is created by the United Nations is Israel and the Arab state, which is still not there, but the Arab state. Where we are is that Likud party and the people on the right of the Likud party, they have turned the language and the narrative of politics in Israel into biblical terms, land of Israel, Erez Israel. Okay? 1977, the Likud party was elected after the Arab-Israeli War of 1973. And Menachem Begin started turning the language of Israeli politics into religious dimension. So from 1977 to where we are now, 1993, 16 years had been the party. And in the 1992 election, the Labour Party returned under Rabin. And Rabin's government engaged in a negotiation with the Palestinians.
2: Let me ask you this, if I may. Do you have the power to call off the strike? I
1: have. For a compelling reason turned up, why?
2: Then call it off. I've been talking to General Sutherland. He's a humane man, but there's nothing he can do. You've made the issue so flatly that no one can help you. I know it, I feel it. Either you compromise or you lose.
1: We won't lose. If the British give in and let us go, we've won. And if we starve to death aboard this ship, we've still won.
2: But for what purpose?
1: Call it publicity.
2: Publicity?
1: Yes, publicity. A stunt to attract attention. A help wanted ad to the official journal of the United Nations. Wanted by 600 men, women, and children of country. A native land, a home. It's all they're dying for. Just to call attention to Israel. Without ever having seen it themselves.
2: Please understand me. I wish you could win. I wish it were possible for you to have a country of your own. But it isn't. You're offering the lives of all these people for something that can never happen. I know, I've been in Palestine. When were you there? A year ago. Mr. Ben Canaan, even if you get a partition and a free Jewish state, the Arabs won't let you keep it. 500,000 Jews against 50 million Arabs? Can't win. You think I'm a fool, but I came to appeal to you to call off the hunger strike and avoid a tragedy.
1: Why don't you appeal to General Sutherland?
2: Oh, what can I tell him?
1: Tell him what God said to Moses. Go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Exodus, chapter seven, verse twenty-six.
5: I know you're very tired. You've had a long trip, so I'm not going to make speeches. It's good to have parties like this. It's also good to know what you're here for. You're here to learn. You're here to work. You're here to build a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Boys and girls, when I came to Palestine 47 years ago, it was not a musical reception with little cakes served. I came walking with my little brother, all the way from Russia. And over in that valley, the swamps, mosquitoes so big they were picking fights with the sparrows. <laughs> now we have changed those swamps into such
4: fields.
5: On a quiet night, you can hear the corn grow, mm-hmm. with oranges so big. Five already make a dozen. <laughs> Over there, you see the Arab village of Abu Yesha. In those days, my old friend Kamal, may God rest his soul, was Mukhtar of the village. And then one day, he donated to us this ground on which you stand for a youth village. Look about you, you will see Arab children here, three of them, grandsons of that same Kamal, the Mukhtar who gave us this land. It grieves me that he isn't with us today to see all this. But he's been gathered to the bosom of Allah. Speak always that name with respect. With us instead, we have the son of come out, Taha, an honor to his father's memory. <clears throat> Raised part of the time in my house with my own dear son, Ari, and with my dear daughter, Giordano, who sits beside him in this place. Here is Taha son of Kamal since five years, Mukhtar of Abu Yesha. Thank you, Barak Ben-Kane. Village president, Dr. Ernst Lieberman. In this valley of Jazreel, we we dwell together as friends. It is natural that we should live in peace, since even our words for it are almost exactly the same. We say, salam, and you, shalom.
1: Let us seal our friendship forever with that most beautiful of Hebrew toasts. L'chaim, to life.
4: L'chaim! (laughs) L'chaim!
3: You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. How has the United Nations been hampered? In enforcing its resolutions regarding Israel and its neighboring Arab states, because at the beginning in 1948 it was the Arab neighbors who broke or, or broke with 181 and invaded Israel. In 1967, it was Israel, and they did not come back uh, from the occupied territories uh, regarding 242, and later with the Yom Kippur War, 338 ignored. Why is it that the Security Council is not enforcing these resolutions by the General Assembly?
4: Excellent question. Excellent question. Um, So the enforcement mechanism in the UN Charter is left to, again, the states. The states who are going to seek to enforce the UN Charter will have the UN authorization So you have the clear example of the Kuwait war right in front of us, right, before before the Oslo Accord. The the United Nations says, the Security Council says, that this occupation of Kuwait is in violation of the charter and it has to be immediately revoked and, and gives the orders to Iraq. Iraq refuses to comply. So the question that you're asking, then who's going to enforce, in, 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 enforce the UN Charter? Well, that's left to the states. That is the, the, the collective uh, membership of the United Nation. And the collective membership of the United Nation comes together, uh, led by the United States and Soviet Union. That was the, the first joint operation in which the two superpowers were in agreement. They come together, and they call upon member states of the United Nations to provide their resources. What does that mean? Resources, Military resources, combat troops that will wear the blue cap of the United Nation. So the question that you have is, well, why hasn't it happened in the case of? Uh, um, Uh, the U.N. resolutions uh, uh, pertaining to uh, Palestine, pertaining to Israel? And the answer is, again, very simple. There is the veto resolution. And the United States has vetoed any enforcement. Why? Well, that leads to American domestic politics back to Truman. And since Truman, the only period in which the president and the congress were not in in any way beholden to the israeli lobby was under the government of eisenhower and to some extent under the government of uh, uh, jfk but since 1967 war that is the administration of johnson there has been no precedent in america and you can count on your fingertip how many presidents have come along that has um, tried to stand uh, in the middle and act forcefully on the U.N. Security Council resolution. Uh, And the Congress is completely beholden to the Israeli lobby.
3: So that's the answer, the Israeli lobby.
4: The the Israeli lobby.
3: How influential. I mean, this is a little tiny country as big as El Salvador or Kuwait how influential can they possibly be in the United States Congress and and the White House to um, prevent the United States from enforcing 242 or 338?
4: Well, all, all foreign policy at some point in time becomes domestic policy, right? So we are looking at the American domestic politics and we are looking at the way... American elections take place, and we're looking at the role of lobbies, you know, in in this case, the Jewish lobby in 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 America, the Israeli lobby, their capacity to influence um, key members of the Congress, uh, and of course, the president uh, by the process of providing funds by helping in the election, by getting them elected, and so on. So take the case of uh, the 1948 election, when Truman was running um, for the first time. And by all the polling information, uh, Truman is going to be defeated by the Republican nominee, uh, Dewey. As you would know, uh, Robert, and as students of American politics should know, it is not the popular vote that wins the presidency, it is the electoral college vote. The key votes of a few uh, uh, states, which are called the swing state, can make the difference in the electoral vote, college vote. So the Jewish lobby, they targeted three or four key swing states for Truman through the pro-Zionist pro-Jewish votes in those states. And which were those states? Those states were Michigan, Ohio, Florida. If you swung those three states, then the electoral college vote would swing towards President Truman. And that's exactly what happened. So the question comes back to, at the end of the day, what is America's national interest? When President Truman was advised, when he called upon his uh, senior members of the government uh, to discuss with him or or he wanted their views they told him not to uh, you know go forward with uh, the partition of palestine because that was not in the national interest of america and and that american national interest would be harmed but the president is also a political creature george marshall was a five star general he was not a political creature he was serving his country, and he would follow whatever the elected representative of the people of American people would say he would follow the, ultimately that decision. So it took another five-star general to become a political leader, that is Eisenhower, who then took a position, as he did, on the basis of America's national interest. But all the other presidents, almost without any exception, have all been in that sense, boxed in by their lobby, in this case, the Israeli lobby.
3: I I don't know what the percentage of the American population is Jewish. I would imagine it's probably no more than 1%, but I could be wrong. And yet I understand that the composition of Joe Biden's cabinet is immensely Jewish. Is that correct? And if so, is this part of the problem of the Jewish lobby?
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the 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 Biden administration, the vast number of uh, American Jews or dual citizens, openly or not so openly, Zionists in their ideological framework. You mean
3: by that religious fanatic Zionists? All of all of Israel belongs to Israel.
4: That that you have to be much more analytical about it because Rabin was a Zionist but he was not a religious man as he as you quoted him you know as I from my paper he didn't take the bible as a land registry for the for the Middle Eastern states you know Herzl who's the founder of Zionist organization the father of Israel was an minimum an agnostic or an atheist
3: so we can distinguish Let's see, because I'm trying to get my head around this right, as an okay. outsider to the entire thing. Yes. We have secular Zionists who simply wanted a state
4: yeah. in
3: the Levant, in, in the Middle East, which right. they got and were happy with for a while. But then you were taken over by religious Zionists who won it all, regardless of the consequences. Is that a fair assessment?
4: Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment in the sense that the religious Zionists, they don't see that their state is based upon anything to do with UN authority or authorization. This is, you know, their land given to them by God. You know, this is their
3: biblical history. I think it's Joshua 13, 15 that is quoted all the time as to the boundaries of what Israel is.
4: Right. And and as I said, that opens up a whole can of worm uh, uh in the in the sense of argument and discussion um about the history itself. Um but the Zionists, the secular Zionists, uh, that's that a labor party, you know, and uh, or used to be, uh, and the last leaders of the Labour Party, that was uh, Rabin and then Shimon Peres they they were fully uh, accept, accepting of the two state solution you know which is the un resolution 181 and uh the answer to the uh, religious zionists that is to benjamin netanyahu and his people including the religious zionist supporters in america and in canada and in england uh is it doesn't matter what you think Is your basis of legitimacy, Mr. Netanyahu, and what is your claim to what you describe as "Erez Israel" and and the land of Israel based upon biblical authority? None of us uh, around the world—you know, say 1.5 billion Muslim, uh, sorry, uh, Indians with a large segment of Muslim, or 1.5 billion Chinese—none of us are there to buy your argument or agree with your argument. We don't recognize that. We recognize that the legitimacy and the right of Israel as a state is based upon UN Resolution 181, and we respect that, and we accept that, and we will protect that. But we anything beyond that is illegitimate, inadmissible, and unacceptable. You've also said that Congress is a,
5: uh, an Israeli occupied territory. Now, what do you mean by that?
0: I said on the McLaughlin group in response to a question, Jim, they said, do you think that the Congress of the United States will resist this demand for further aid? I said, "Through out a crack I'd heard." I said, no, the Congress of the United States is Israeli occupied territory. What I meant by that is the most powerful lobby in Washington which Congress can't stand up to, one of the most powerful, is certainly the pro-Israeli lobby. It has gotten its way in this town year in and year out. And I don't think the automatic votes of the Congress of the United States for three and four billion dollars worth of aid to Israel are necessarily in the national interest of the United States. And that comment, which is to ridicule the subservience of the Congress of the United States, is perfectly valid. I do not believe my government should subsidize Israeli socialism, which we have done, And I do not believe we should subsidize a policy on the West Bank of the Jordan River which denies the Palestinian people rights which I support from Lithuania to Croatia. But if I also believe that Pat Buchanan is entitled to stand up and speak out if he, against any kind of political lobby, whether it's the Greek lobby, aid for Greece, or whether it's the pro-Israeli lobby, aid for Israel, without being called vile names.
3: And, and you think that's what's happened to you?
0: Let me tell you something, Jim. When this, this little flap is 18 months old,
5: well, it just, I made Buckley's, this crack. I know
0: Buckley's talking about an 18-month-old column. Right, Let's forget right. that. When this broke, I made that Wiseacre crack about the Amen Corner. It was Wiseacre, and it was very funny. You know what happened as a consequence of that? People called my newspapers that carried my column and said, drop Buchanan. APAC listed five conservative columnists who were uh, accepted. the, the Jewish uh, the, no, lobby. No, the pro-Israeli yeah, lobby, pro-Israeli right. lobby. I went out to speak in the country, and a little girl from the Junior League said, I get these horrible calls from New York about you. Uh, people, there are individuals who are pro-Israeli, go around the country and speak in synagogues and say, call CNN and get Pat Buchanan taken off the air. Those kinds of tactics, in my judgment, are un-American. They are done in the name of the First Amendment, and they violate the spirit of the First Amendment. You know me. I've been in this town for 25 years, 30 years. I am controversial. I am sometimes insensitive. I am tough, and I am hard. But I think that this type of thing is beyond the pale.
3: Here we get into the realm of name-calling and pejoratives and generalizations that come into play that lead to misunderstandings. For example, if somebody says that you're a religious Zionist, they may take that to mean, oh, you're an anti-Semite? You're against Jews? You're a racist because you don't believe we have a biblical right to the land? all the way to Jordan, This I see this all the time, the name calling, the racism, the anti-Semitism, even though I, I would imagine the majority of Jews in Israel are not even of Semitic origin, as you said before, they're Hazarian or they're Ashkenazi Jews, they're not necessarily Semitic. So it's very complex and people are generalizing all the time, which leads to a lot of name calling, which debases the entire argument, which I find fascinating.
4: Yes, it is. And it is fascinating only in the sense is this argument has any leg to stand upon is because of the vast ignorance of the people in Europe and North America. No no uh, uh, Zionists, so let me again be very careful in choosing the word, not Jew, but Zionists. No Zionist can go to India and say you are anti-Semite. They will look at their face and say, what are you saying, Mr. Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Netanyahu? What do you mean by anti-Semite? Jews have lived with us and among us and intermarried and been honored for 2,500 years. You talk about biblical Israel or biblical land? Well, in your first exile, the Babylonian exile, Jews arrived in India and have ever since been there in in India, till they decided on their own to go to Israel. We've had Jews in the Indian Army. We've had Jews in Bollywood. We've had Jews in industries. We've had Jews in universities and schools. So what are you talking about, being us being anti Semites? Try to go and tell the Chinese, you know, you're anti-Semite, or Japanese, or Indonesians an example say so what is it about this anti-semitism this was a hoax a scam perpetrated by an writer in 1870s the first time the word was used anti-semitism by this german writer by the name of willem maher you know and used the term anti-semitism to describe the sort of rising bigotry in uh, Germany uh, as the process of industrialization and urbanization was accelerating in the nineteenth century, in the early through mid-19th century and onwards, when uh, the Jews of Eastern Europe coming out of Uh, small towns and villages were migrating westward for opportunities. So somebody arrives from Sri Lanka in Canada and is confronted with, again, ignorance and bigotry towards Sri Lankans, you know, so whatever it is, anti-Sri Lankan or anti-Pakistanis. In England, it became anti-Paki jokes, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. So anti-Semitism became a term, you know, uh, instead of saying anti-Jew, it became anti-Semitism. Anti-Jew would be a religious designation, right? Against Judaism, anti-Jew. You're a Christian. You're against Jew. So instead of calling them uh, the, the 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 sense of ignorance and bigotry, anti-Jew, which is what would have been a more proper term of usage, though again, you know, an abominable term. Why would anybody be an anti-Jew? But that that is part of the You might say Christian history goes back 2000 years to the rejection of Jews by uh, rejection of Jesus by the Jews. So instead of calling them calling anti Jew and anti Judaism, the word became uh, the discrimination was used anti Semitism. Why? Because the biblical Jews among whom Jesus walked were Semitic people, but the European Jews in the diaspora are not all Semites. So this is a scam. But Theodor Herzl used the term anti-Semitism in his book, The Jewish State, as a basis of the necessity to solve the racial problem of anti-Semitism. Because he used the term in a racial term.
3: So we can actually uh, say that. Listen, we as rational people can be against the Likud party and Benjamin Netanyahu and the religious fanaticism that prevents them from withdrawing from East Jerusalem or the West Bank because they're they're rooted in a biblical history without being anti-Jewish. It's a political stance, a secular stance against a religious stance is all it is.
4: Oh, absolutely, uh, uh, Robert. And as I said, this this line of uh, discussion deserves its own uh, uh, format because it is, again, leads to a whole number of other issues. And at the heart of that issue is the strongest and the most determined opponents of Zionism, whether secular or religious, were Jews and are Jews. I mean, there are Jews who have remained opposed to Zionism in any and all form.
3: Well, most of the diaspora, again, I'm not an expert in this, you are, most of the diaspora after World War II chose not to go to Israel, or at at Israel, they chose to go to a country they knew where they could practice their religion in peace, relative, uh, compared to what happened in Europe, the United States of America
4: exactly so as i said you know we need if, if this this discussion is a fascinating this particular discussion is a fascinating that has been obscured right. because as as you said in your op, in your initial remarks that if you question Uh, Israel, Likud party, religion, Zionism, et cetera, then you're an anti-Semite. And because of the fear of being called an anti-Semite, people don't want to engage in this discussion. And that plays to the advantage of the people, that is the Benjamin Netanyahu and those people, to not only suffocate the debate, stifle the debate but to police the people, that is to, through censorship, not to engage in any discussion, that there are Jews and non-Jews who do not accept, never accepted, right from the beginning, from the time of Theodor Herzl, this argument of uh, Zionism, that the, that the Jews of Europe meet a statehood, Uh, to solve the problem of anti-Semitism.
3: Salim, as fascinating as this is, this conversation that your paper has opened up could go on until the second coming of the Messiah, (laughs) but we don't have that time. So I'll ask you one last question and to bring it home, and that is, um, what role, if any, is there for other nations individually, like Canada? Let's bring it back to Canada. What role does Canada have to play in this process, if any?
4: In my view, uh, Robert, if there was a prime minister in Canada at this time among us who had both the integrity of his own position as a leader uh, and who had an understanding of the issues that we are talking about, would then come down as follows. That Canada is a founding member of the United Nation. It was a Canadian who was the author of the declaration, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, John Humphreys, from your part of Canada. He was a Maritimer. We have contributed to the building of the United Nation. We have been a foremost member of the United Nation. And our role as a small country, uh, as a middle power, so to speak, has been the role to broker an understanding among the countries of the world on the basis of the UN Charter, which we contributed to writing and implementing. And so we stand with the United Nations. We have been a player The UN Security Council Resolution 242 was negotiated under the presence of the Canadian ambassador who was, at the time that the resolution was voted and adopted by the Security Council in November of 1967, the president of the council, his name was George Ignatieff. We, therefore, our, prime, uh, our foreign minister and subsequently prime minister was the man who was instrumental in innovating the role for the UN of peacekeeping and peacemaking, for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize. You know, Lester Pearson. So, our voice, our contribution, our role in the United Nations, which means in the world has been second to none, and we remain faithful to the position that we have followed. And we will do that and will continue to do that in whatever way and form we can contribute or we are asked to contribute. And so in this case of Arab-Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we were there. Ivan Rood was our representative at the UN meeting where the resolution 181 was adopted. We voted for it. We will contribute to see that we can bring this conflict to an end on the basis of those resolutions, you know, the two state resolution, and help both the people fulfill their own destiny in Palestine. That would be my position. That would be, I hope, the position of any leader in Canada that has the courage to stand up and speak and be what we have been, peacekeepers and peacemakers.
3: It sounds very prime ministerial, Salim. Too bad we don't have anybody of that caliber in Parliament at the moment. I will just let our listeners and viewers know that you have also come out with yet another Substack after your um, the one that we were just talking about about R- Rabin's assassination, and it's titled Theodore Herzl and Pope Pius X. So I would encourage people to go to Salim's Substack, uh, Salimenser.substack.com, and have a look at his writings. They are quite an, op- an eye opener for for those of us here, especially in the West. Who are not steeped in the history of that region and I think that once you read these you'll be spurred into conversation hopefully that they'll hopefully they'll be peaceful so <laughs> until again the uh, next time Salim thank you very much
4: thank you Robert thank you for this
3: I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Salim Mansur again you can find the entire conversation on our video channels on YouTube Rumble bitshoot and Odyssey. Be sure to join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then.
2: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the everything will
5: be alright. Israel-Palestine is a very tricky situation. Can't deny that. It's tricky because the Palestinians are mad at the Israelis for taking their land. So then they'll throw rocks but they're just giving them more land, you know? Like, we gotta hold on to those rocks. That's how Israel keeps getting bigger and bigger, you know? It's very confusing, you know? Spend 70 years, the Palestinians are still in
3: disbelief. Like, this cannot be real! And the Jews are like, no, this is Israel. Very confusing. <laughs>